0: Hi, I'm Evan from Silver Spring, Maryland.
1: I'm Nicole from Toronto.
0: I'm Jake from Chattanooga. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me.
1: You should support the show like I did.
0: It's easy. Just visit maximumfunorg slash donate.
1: I'm Susan Orlean, in for Jesse Thorne this week. My guest is Jack Black. Would you say that your first love is music rather than acting, or is it just a, a... the whole thing combined
2: well when i think back to the beginning there was always a little bit of both i uh like to sing along with the uh, different albums in the living room and stare in the mirror i had this thing i like to do where i would put on this i can't find it either i've been trying to find it this uh dr seuss album of songs inspired by dr seuss i guess and um there were lots of harmonies and different instruments and i would sing the song in the mirror while it was playing on the record player and imagine that i was doing all of the instruments by myself that there was you know like a trumpet coming out of my nostril the the singing vocal out of my voice out of my mouth and out of my ears would come you know the drums and the different things and that there would be an audience watching me just in awe that this man was able to do everything by himself And uh, that led to my sort of narcissistic need to be uh, on stage.
1: It's Bullseye. Coming up, my conversation with Jack Black. Is he more of an actor who likes to play music or more a musician who fell into acting? We'll talk about that. I
2: think it was music first, actually. Yeah. But followed closely by acting.
1: And we'll channel High Fidelity a little bit and talk about our favorite records.
2: Like you can say, yeah, I love Billy Joel. And you go, oh really? When?
1: Then we'll revisit Jesse's conversation with the rapper Bun B. He was one half of UGK and still one of the South's greatest hip-hop lyricists. Bun B will talk about UGK's breakthrough performance on a huge Jay-Z record over a decade ago.
3: I feel like this was my one chance to rap against Jay-Z. I need to show lyrical dexterity.
1: Plus, looking for some heavy music? Pitchfork and Grantland's Ian Cohn will show you some of the best new stuff. And I'll tell you about the sorcerer of the guitar. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. You've almost certainly seen Jack Black. He's been in movies like School of Rock, Nacho Libre, and King Kong. But when you see Jack Black, you also hear Jack Black. Music has always been central to what he does. He's in the band Tenacious D, for sure. But musicality finds its way into his film and television work, too. As far back as the late 90s, Jack would occasionally show up on the HBO sketch show Mr. Show with Bob and David. He calls those cameos some of his first meaningful appearances on TV. Here he is in a hilarious, weird parody of Jesus Christ Superstar. It's called Jeepers Creepers Semi Star.
4: good life? I guess you tell me! Are you the Messiah?
0: Yes, I, know, I, but perhaps, could be.
1: Jack even sang when he was playing a funeral director a couple years ago. The film was Bernie. Blessed
2: assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste. Glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is, story, this is my story. When
1: Jack is on screen, it's like he can't help but belt out a tune. And that's a big part of why he's such a joy to watch. Jack Black, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks for being here.
2: Wow, thank you.
1: So I saw Bernie last night oh did you I absolutely loved it
2: oh thank you
1: I gotta say I just thought it was a fantastic movie Uh on in every way and I was curious about a couple of things yeah one of the the things that I loved in the film was just hearing your voice when did you know that you could sing you sing from the time you were a kid
2: uh, I loved to sing when I was a kid, but uh, I didn't really—I I would like to sing along to albums uh, at home, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, and, and uh, what was the other stuff I liked? I liked ABBA, Take a Chance on Me. And uh, when I was in high school, there was a um, production of Pippin happening, and I practiced some, some songs, and uh, and I auditioned for it. And uh, there was a song in there by the leading player that's uh, called Glory. And you really have to belt it out to sing it right. So in the audition, I sang Glory. And it's something like, glory, 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 glory. Sorry, did I? But anyway, I remember that there was a girl who was auditioning after me in the hallway. And uh, as I was coming out of my audition, she said, Jack, I didn't know. You could do that, and it was the first time that any girl had really had any interest in me, or, or I felt anything from, you know, and I and uh, it sort of changed my world. And so I was like, did you start sing?
1: You're gonna, you're gonna start serenading?
2: <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh,
1: what is um, to your best recollection the first moment when you really were out there as a performer, even as a as a kid?
2: There was a summer camp. Uh, in Idlewild, California, uh, right outside of Los Angeles. And uh, I went there and we did a production of The Wizard of Oz. And I was the wizard, which uh, sounds like a great role, but when you really think about it, it's one of the smallest roles in the play. You barely ever see the wizard. He's only really revealed at the end. And uh, I really focused on the funny face that I made when I was revealed the embarrassment and the uh the fear i got a nice laugh and that was the beginning you know that first laugh it was like the sweet nectar of the gods and i had to have more
1: what did you listen to growing up
2: um well besides
1: abba and did you start listening to were you listening to heavy metal then or or i didn't get into into
2: heavy metal until much later uh you know I was a product of the 70s and I loved uh Styx was maybe one of the first rock bands that that uh, caught my attention it was that song there, Renegade and the cool kids at camp were listening to it and I, I just wanted to listen to that song over and over again and and I bought the first album I bought I believe was Styx The Grand Illusion I memorized that whole album Come Sail Away
1: Sometimes I wonder whether you can analyze a person's character by what the first album was that oh, they bought.
2: Oh, yeah. Wouldn't
1: well, that be interesting?
2: Well, I don't know about just the first album. That's not fair because, like like I said, you're a product of your times, and and uh, the times, they may be super cheesy, and you shouldn't judge a person by the hot blast of cheese that they bought <laughs> at the first But. I do believe that if you listen to someone's whole library of music, you can really get a sense of who they are.
1: See, uh, this this worries me because when I was in college, yeah. when I was going out with a guy or vice versa, they I would look through their record collection mm-hmm. and I made many decisions about people <laughs> based on that and ended up with one guy for years because we both – Very early on, had the first Bruce Springsteen album way early. Yeah. And we had this bonding, you know, probably a huge mistake. But now what are you going to do, flip through someone's phone?
2: Yeah. But it's interesting that you say way early because you're right. There's something about finding things not only early but appreciating uh, someone's work at certain times. Like you can say, yeah, I love Billy Joel. And you go, oh, really? When, and you say, oh, you know the the Stranger album, or you know the there's, so, and you go, oh, okay, good, yeah,
1: right, yeah, and which which Grateful when? Dead period, exactly, before Donna and Keith Godshow or <laughs> after. While we're talking about being obsessive about record collections, how much of that informed your character in High Fidelity, and where we saw you. As the ultimate record snob and geek.
2: Yeah, well, that was the key. That was the that was the whole character it was uh, this guy who has an encyclopedic knowledge of music and who uh, sits in judgment of everyone who comes into the store. Barry was, uh, yeah, was all about that. It's tough because when I read the script the first time, I thought, um, I don't want to talk about. You know, these people, it was a brilliantly written script, but I don't want to talk about Kurt Cobain. It's too—I love these people too much to say their names in a way. You know what I mean?
1: You mean declaring that this music was acceptable and this music was not and actually naming a, a sort of list of music that passed muster? Yeah,
2: the idea of of saying some of these these uh, band names and artists in a scene uh, seemed to cheapen them to me. I don't know. I, I had a, a strange, you know, reverence for some of these artists and I didn't I didn't want to name check them.
1: Maybe it's talking about something that really means so much to you. It's almost the equivalent of a BuzzFeed list: the ten bands you must listen to before you die. And you think, ah, yeah. no, that's not <laughs> what it's about.
2: Or the uh, the always uh, popular um, Desert Island album, which is this. This is a ridiculous concept because there's no album that you would listen to more than you know a hundred times before you went insane. And-
1: but at the same time, having done those. Lists, I'll put something down like London Calling, and yeah. then I think, you know what, I now I you don't understand it. I want to explain <laughs> why and how I feel about the Clash and what it means and why the music is significant. I, I don't want it just to just on some lit, I don't know why. I find the list itself makes it feel like I'm dumb or yeah. <laughs> that I like things for the wrong reasons, right. Well, you did a great job in the movie. I'm glad you did it. Thank you. I did my best.
2: I I ended up having a great experience on that movie. I'm glad I didn't uh, bail because of my finicky musical ways. I almost bailed. I almost, I didn't bail. I mean, I almost just said no. I did say no. I said, I'm passing. My agent said, are you an idiot? You're an idiot. Just, ugh. And I said, all right, well, let me. Let me talk to the director. and I went and talked to Stephen Frears, and and uh, he just thought I I was insane. And I said, "Well, let me let me audition for you and see if you think I I should still play the role." And I gave the worst audition ever, and he still said, "I'm that was a horrible audition." And I'm still I still want you to do the role. And I said, "Okay, in that case, I, I will do it." Mooney Pete—it's almost impossible to find, especially on CD. Yet another cruel cool trick played on all the dumbasses who got rid of their turntables. But every other Echo in the Bunnyman album—yeah, I have
0: all the was... other ones. Oh, you do.
2: Well, how about the Jesus and Mary Chain? Yeah, yeah they always—they always seem they always what? They always seem really great—is what they always seem. They picked up where your precious Echo left off. And you're sitting around complaining about no more Echo albums. I can't believe you don't own
1: this f- record. That's insane. Jesus. It's Bullseye, and I'm Susan Orlean. In for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the actor and musician Jack Black. Would you say that your first love is music rather than acting, or is it just a, a the whole thing combined?
2: Well, when I think back to the beginning, there was always a little bit of both. I, uh, I uh, like to sing along with uh, different albums in the living room and stare in the mirror. I had this thing I like to do where I would put on this. I can't find it either. I've been trying to find it this uh Dr Seuss album of songs inspired by Dr Seuss I guess and um there were lots of harmonies and different instruments and i would sing the song in the mirror while it was playing on the record player and imagine that i was doing all of the instruments by myself that there was you know like a trumpet coming out of my nostril the the singing vocal out of my voice out of my mouth and out of my ears would come you know, the drums and the different things, and that there would be an audience watching me just in awe that this man was able to do everything by himself. And uh, that led to my sort of narcissistic need to be uh, on stage. Um, did that lead to it, or I don't know what it is. But uh, when I first saw Bobby McFerrin uh, on uh, television, it was in the, gr- it was a, he was. It was at the Grammys, and it was in, like, the early 80s. And uh, he was by himself just singing, and he sounded like a trumpet, and then he sounded like a different instrument. And I thought, that is my dream. That is what I've always wanted to be. And, uh, yeah, I think it was music first, actually, yeah. But followed closely by acting, because then I had this thing where – I would have the my my mother and father sit in the living room, and I would do a show. I was an only child of my parents they my mother had kids before she was married to my father, but I got all the attention I needed there so um and I recreated i remember this vividly I recreated my whole life from birth and then past how old I was to my old age and to my death. This was a one-man show that I created when I was only, like, five years old. And and uh, it started with me, like, being born out of, out of my mom's womb. And then it was real quick. It was only, like, a five-minute uh, lifespan.
1: Is this on video somewhere?
2: I don't think so.
1: Oh, uh, what a tragedy. I know.
2: They didn't th- – there's not enough footage of the young Jack Black.
1: I couldn't agree more. Um, one uh, quality that I see – that runs through really all your performances, not just, you know, even within Tenacious D, your band with with your friend Kyle, um, your comedic performances, the films. All of the characters, to me, have a kind of innocence. There's some quality of pure belief that... It can come off as a kind of obliviousness. I think with Tenacious D, you began with this idea that these guys are really awful but believe that they're great. And there's, But I see that in all these characters. Um, is that an unconscious connection or one that you see as well?
2: I guess uh, that is just sort of... An essential quality to who I am. You know, I, I'm a, I'm kind of a man-child, if uh, if I'm going to be honest about it. And that sort of comes through in all the characters. And those are the characters I'm drawn to, I guess, are the ones that have that innocence that you talk about. And there is there is something funny about that oblivious thing and the sort of wrong-headed confidence that comes from that. Mm-hmm. Someone who thinks they, they know the answer, and they sort of just go towards their fates and that, that makes me laugh
1: it seems to me it gives you the opportunity to play with those characters without ever seeming to belittle them because it's it doesn't come off feeling that you are making fun of that innocence as much as really embracing it yeah <laughs>
2: Well, uh, you're right. That is the source of my greatest sort of uh, joy. It comes from a a childish place. And I feel like uh, I'm attracted to that and other people when I I work with uh, directors that come from that sort of childish wonder place. Like uh, I had a great experience with Peter Jackson on, on, on King Kong and just watching him do his thing. And, you know, he's this he's doing gigantic, ginormous, epic films, you know. With these massive budgets and and massive scope, hundreds and hundreds of people working for him, and mm-hmm. but at the at the same time, he's just like a child, and there's sort of a, a childish fascination to the way he approaches his work, and that yeah, I'm really drawn to.
1: Are there are there directors who you'd love to work with?
2: Yeah, there's. Uh, I-, I love the uh, the directors that work out on the fringe, you know and like uh, uh, Jim Jarmusch pushing the envelope and David Lynch. I've always wondered what that would be like. The surreal pioneers. I have a streak that I've never really um, explored in film that would be would be fun to, to do.
1: So very different from uh, the films you've been in yeah. so far.
2: Yeah. It would just be... A great adventure for me. I know that that wouldn't necessarily uh, be the 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 greatest uh, idea for my career, but it would be fun to do something like that.
1: I'll talk more with Jack Black after a break. I'm Susan Orlean, and this is Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
0: Max FunCon is the ultimate weekend getaway. Come to the mountains of Southern California. Hang out with brilliant creative people. Laugh at amazing comedy shows. Make friends for the rest of your life. Tickets are on sale now. Go to MaxFunCon.com while we've still got room.
1: It's Bullseye, and I'm Susan Orlean, in for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking today with the actor and musician Jack Black. He's in the comedy rock group Tenacious D. He's starred in movies like School of Rock. He's voiced animated characters like Kung Fu Panda. And he continues to stay busy acting and producing. Um, You're working on a TV project now. Yeah. Well, you're working – it sounds like you're working on many, many projects now, but um, – uh, a, I got a few. The TV project, this will be your first time um, working on a television project in a while, right?
2: True. Yeah. This is my first real uh, lead part in a, in a pilot, so that's exciting.
1: And this is a black comedy.
2: Yeah. It's for HBO. So it's not really TV. It's HBO. <laughs> it's a cut above. But uh <laughs> this is uh called The Brink. It's kind of like did you did you ever watch MASH? It's like MASH yeah. without the laugh track, obviously. It's it takes place in Pakistan. It's just sort of about these Americans that are work for the government or, or the military and, um, are sort of embedded in, in, in the world, uh, in, in Pakistan where, uh, there's, a, sort of a, a brewing revolution coming and, and it could lead to world war three. So the stakes are very high. I'm just this sort of low level foreign service officer that's in Pakistan, uh, trying to get fresh water to different parts of the, of the country. And, And really, I'm just this sort of stoner guy that is uh, sex crazed and always looking to have a good time. And it's really funny and it's really serious at the same time. So uh, it's sort of an interesting uh, project. And Jay Roach is directing, who I love, and Tim Robbins is going to be playing Secretary of State. So it's got a lot of great elements. We'll see. You know, it's always a chemistry experiment. You, You go into it thinking, let's. Make this the greatest television show of all time, and see what happens. And uh, you know, the the uh, the rate of pilots that kept, get picked up is pretty low, though. So I'm not gonna. I even feel weird talking about it now. You start talking about a pilot that may never air. <laughs> so it sounds good. So far, so good.
1: Yeah, well, it sounds great. But it, it's also interesting to be moving to be looking at that format and yeah. which would be a. A very different platform for you.
2: Yeah, and also uh, people are starting to clue into how great a story can be when you have, you know, a hundred hours to t- to to do the whole arc. Why Why wouldn't you always do that? It's a it's a much more, uh, you know, deep way to tell a story. Now,
1: potential. are you writing that?
2: That television show? Yeah. No, I'm not writing that. I I, uh, I have been uh, writing with Kyle, m- my partner in Tenacious D, uh, working on some new material. We have some, some big plans for the next album and, uh, and concepts that I can't even really talk about because I feel like it, it's a, a spoiler alert. And I also am paranoid that someone will steal our ideas.
1: Do you ever... Uh have a a yen to direct
2: um you know i do like to uh to be in control so that makes sense and i do like to tell stories but um there's something about directing the patience of directing that i don't know if i have that that in me maybe someday
1: but that's not uh a great unfulfilled desire
2: no in fact Things like that seem like things that you have to do, something that you you, – it's not even a question of should I or shouldn't I? It seems like directing is something that you're compelled to do and you just find yourself doing it, Uh, making a conscious decision. I can't imagine any great director coming from someone going, you know, maybe I'll – I don't know. I guess everything has to start somewhere, but –
1: Well, but it's true. It's almost – as ridiculous as imagining someone saying, you know, I think I probably should try comedy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you
1: think, oh, that's that's going to work.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm going to try stand up. Have you ever done just straight stand up? Have you toured as a
2: Never. Never just straight stand up. As a rule, I never go up alone. I always take Kyle, someone else, I can blame it on if it goes badly. I take my guitar, that's my shield, to protect me against the slings and arrows. Uh, they're, they're brave warriors, those stand-up comedians that go out um, all by themselves with nothing but their their jokes that they wrote earlier that day sometimes. and
1: Now, I will say one of the highlights in Bernie uh, was the... I would say 42nd bit from The Music Man.
2: Oh, yeah. 76 trombones led the big parade With 110 cornets close at hand They were followed by rows and rows Of the finest virtual So's the green of every famous band
1: (laughs) That made me really want to see you. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. perform that entire
2: play. You know, I've always wanted to do The Music Man. So I was I was actually fulfilling a, a little fantasy there when I got to do that one scene.
1: It was great. It
2: was a blast. Is
1: there can we look forward yeah, to this in trouble. our future?
2: Uh you never know. Never say never. It'd be tough to to go and do something on Broadway now that I've got these little kids in my life that are in school here in Los Angeles. But uh, maybe uh, maybe there could be a, a, a production at the Pentagius.
1: Yeah, or a little summer stock.
2: A little summer stock, yeah. <laughs> maybe just in uh, your living room. Maybe and I could I'm, mount a small production.
1: I, I'm open to that as well. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show, Jack. It's been wonderful.
2: Anytime, Susan.
1: Jack Black. Hey, You can catch him opposite Cameron Diaz and Jason Segel in the movie Sex Tape out next year or, fingers crossed, in an upcoming HBO series called The Brink. He's also promised some new stuff from Tenacious D. We'll take him however we can get him. It's Bullseye. I'm Susan Orlean, and for Jesse Thorne. We're talking a lot about music on the show today. We haven't talked too much about heavy music. That's where our friend Ian Cohn comes in. He's a writer for Pitchfork and Grantland. Whether you're already into metal, punk, or all things heavy, or you're just ready to hear a couple of great records that will show you the light, Ian's here with a couple of recommendations. Hi, Ian. How's it going? Pretty good. I'm ready to see the light here. Your first <laughs> pick is the new album from Death Grips called Government Plates. Yeah. This is the second album they've released with no fanfare or promotion for free download. Mm-hmm. So let's hear some of the track Feels Like a Wheel. That sounds a little bit like a washing machine with something loose flipping around (laughs) in it. Uh, Death Groups is two guys from Sacramento, MC Mm -hmm. Ride and Zach Hill. Mm -hmm. They've played with a lot of different genres, noise, hip-hop, EDM. What's going on with this album and what what do you like about it
4: you know it's funny that you mentioned uh, this is their second album that was released for free the big uh, controversy that was going on last year around this time is uh, when they released their first free album they had been involved in a very very controversial and confusing uh, record deal with epic you know they met with la reed and you know la reed was basically saying you know you guys don't sound like whitney houston but like i feel the same way i did when i first heard her you know, what a lot of people like about it is that it combines the aggression of punk and the sound of noise, but also the format of hip hop in a way that isn't necessarily like rap rock. So, this song in particular just shows how they've been able to integrate all forms of music and just kind of their own thing. Or you can just say, well, it sounds like a washing machine with stuff <laughs> in it. That's also great. Some people appreciate that.
1: Your second recommendation is from Iron Sheik's new album The Constant One so Iron Sheik is maybe a little more straight ahead melodic punk music let's listen to some of this track which is Spooky Action at a Distance sounds like early clash to me a little bit so tell us about this album
4: well iron chic um is a band from long island which if if people do know long island for anything you know besides i guess like billy joel or whatever it's bands such as like saves the day or brand new or taking back sunday well you know saves the day being from new jersey but like just the kind of sound of more melodic punk very um intense and sincere and i think what this does, um, in particular, is kind of toe that line where it's, you know, melodic enough to be something that you might hear, like, on the radio in, like, 1996 or whatever. Like, um, but at the same time, it has this sort of, um, you know, raw-throated, uh, scrappy appeal that, you know, separates it from being, like, necessarily, like, say, like, Blink-182 or something that most people would consider to be pop-punk.
1: Well, Ian Cohen recommends Iron Sheik's new record, The Constant One, out on Bridge Nine Records. He also suggests to listen to the new album from Death Grips called Government Plates. Ian writes for Pitchfork and for Grantland, you can find more from him on those sites. Thanks,
4: Ian. Thanks so much, Ian.
1: Fun B will talk to Jesse about what it felt like to be on one of the biggest Jay-Z records ever. That's after a break. I'm Susan Orlean and this is Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
4: Hi, this is Dave Hill from Dave Hill's Podcasting
2: Incident on the Maximum Fun Network. I'm here with my lovely and talented secretary, Ms. Shana Feinberg. Shana, I understand you've been doing a bit of research to find out what listeners think of the show.
4: Yes, I have, Dave.
2: And what have you found?
4: Well, people that love it say they love it because it's just Dave hanging out with someone in his apartment. Awesome. What, what do people that hate it say? They hate it because it's just Dave hanging out with someone in his apartment. Oh. Listen to Dave Hill's podcast dancing on the Maximum Fun
2: Network, Mother Was that too much?
3: No, I think it was perfect.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Susan Orlean, in for Jesse Thorne. The rapper Bun B was, for many years, one half of the duo UGK, alongside his high school friend Pimp C., UGK stands for Underground Kings, and at the time they were some of the Dirty South's best lyricists. They hailed from Port Arthur, Texas, and pioneered the sound of Southern rap. Pimp C died six years ago of complications from sleep apnea and a codeine overdose. But Bunn has continued to record and release music on his own. He's just released his fourth solo album. Here's Fire off Trill O.G., the epilogue.
3: Murder, murder, red rum. Man, we are gone dead dumb. Rude boy, lick a shot and take his neck up. But I'm head from his shoulders. This is bedlam, mayhem, chaos. Competition ceases. second already they lost. Thinking they boss like the Triple C CEO. WDOAASAPUCV. E UMBOG, that's why they're ducking me. Rude boy, not deal with them, bro. Okay, we bucking G. The ghetto red, how do you?
1: Jesse spoke with Bunn in 2009, just after the final UGK album was released.
0: So you're from Port Arthur, Texas, and I've only been to Texas, um, like in the airport on my way to Mexico. So tell me a little bit about what Port Arthur was like when you were growing up. Well, Port Arthur, Texas
3: is a refinery town. You know, we're right on the uh, on the water, of course, hence the port to the title. But, um, you know, we're only about 15, 20 miles away from Spindletop, which was uh, one of the biggest oil derricks ever uh, found in America. So um, built up around Spindletop and, you know, different kinds of oil wells like, like it, um, this entire community area of, of the world basically sprouted up to uh, support the oil industry.
0: You, your folks didn't work uh, directly in the oil industry, right? No, no. My um,
3: my my mother worked in uh, like private care, and my stepfather was a janitor.
0: How old were you when you first met Pimp
3: C? Uh, well, I had already known him. You know, that's the thing about Port Arthur It was a small town, so everyone kind of knew everybody. You know, his mom was a librarian at the high school. His uh, his stepfather was, uh, you know, band director, one of the, the I mean, one of the choir directors at the school. So everybody kind of knew who he was because of who his parents were. I didn't really get to. I guess, say, build a friendship with him until probably 88, 89.
0: Were you guys instant friends or?
3: uh, No, not at all. Not at all. Pimp C and uh, Bum B, uh, by nature, are very, very different individuals. Different to the point where if we had not had business together, we would not have business together, if that makes any sense. Like, I typically don't hang around with people that act like Pimp C. Pimp C doesn't typically hang around people that act like me.
0: How do you guys act? What do you mean? I
3: mean, I mean I'm mean, i the yin to his yang and vice versa. You know what I'm saying? Uh, when we initially started, I was much more the extrovert. You know, I was the person that was out hanging out all the time, you know what I'm saying, on the corners and stuff like that. Pimp C was more reserved in the house, making music, concentrating on music more than anything as time grew on as, as things started getting more serious and we started getting more exposure I started really understanding how much of a business it was and I became more introverted and started trying to really understand the business side of it and once PMC started realizing how popular we were starting to get it he started to you know come more out of his shell and embrace the fame and the you know the the I guess all the lavish luxuries that comes with that.
0: Were you doing street stuff too at the time?
3: Um, not until after I graduated, really.
0: Well, how did the, what was the relationship between you, you know, making money doing stuff that was illegal and you making money, making records? Like, how did, how did one flow into the other? And, you know, what was, what was, at
3: at the time we weren't making any money making records. That's the thing. You know what I'm saying? We were still trying to make records. I mean, to be very frank with you, we were hustling to make music, to go in the studio and record music and stuff like that. And, um, you know, it was always with the understanding that eventually this music would sell and we wouldn't have to do any of this tree stuff anymore.
0: The early 90s was the birth Or at least the birth in the mainstream Of gangster rap And the kind of themes that that you guys talked about A a lot in your records I I was just listening to Pocket Full of Stones Which was one of the first records that you guys did That had a a big national impact And it's basically just A song about selling crack
3: (laughs) I I disagree uh, if If you really listen to the record You'll notice that we start out on the corner hustling We end up making a lot of money from it We end up getting busted going to jail, doing time, coming back out, and end up doing the same thing again. What we're trying to show is that if you get inside this world, you end up in a never-ending cycle. But I guess you didn't get that.
1: (laughs) It's Bullseye, and I'm Susan Orlean in for Jesse Thorne. You're hearing Jesse Thorne's conversation with the southern hip-hop pioneer Bun B. He was one half of the duo UGK, his cohort Pimp C passed six years ago, and Bunn has continued to record as a solo artist. Jesse and Bun spoke in 2009.
0: You guys had this huge breakthrough when you were on the uh, the couldn't have been bigger Jay Z hit Big Pimpin. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard that uh, I heard that when you first got the call from. Uh, from New York to do the record. Pimp was ambivalent about uh, about getting on it, and, and you were a little bit more for it. What, what was it like?
3: Well, I mean, it was just the fact of it was obvious what doing a record with Jay-Z at that time was going to mean in terms of exposure. And I was all for it. I was ready for it. I didn't have any issues with it. You know, I kept trying to impress upon him the fact that this was not a UGK record. It was a Jay-Z record, and it would not reflect on, on us like that. But uh, he he still was was very apprehensive about it.
0: Why did you end up deciding to do it?
3: Oh me, I did it because I want I wanted to be on a big record. I mean, it was time for us to be exposed to people. I wanted people to see what UGK could do. I wanted people to see my lyrical ability next to Jay Z's. You know, more than anything. Speak, Pippin, baby. You know, this was. An opportunity for an amateur fighter to get in a ring with a title holder, you know what I'm saying? Sure, and you know you want you want to at least last to the twelfth round. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, I mean, if you're lucky enough to get some good licks in along the way, then fine. If you can get a knockout, great. But at the end of the day, I just wanted to make sure that I made it through the, to the 12th round, you know?
0: You have such a great verse on that record. And um, w- w- one of the things that's always struck me about it is, um, you know, at the time, Jay-Z was stylistically all about almost trying to be effortless, trying to never, never break a sweat. Mm -hmm. and you kind of burst into the song, you know, fist-flying lyrically. What was it like to go into that studio and know that, like, you really wanted to make an impression?
3: Well, I I think what happened in that case, um, as I look back on it, I I look at it and I see that Jay-Z anticipating doing a record with Bun B and Bun B anticipating a record with Jay-Z comes from two different places and the end result is going to be a different thing not to say that he underestimated me or that I overestimated him but I think with his idea of the kind of record that he wanted to do was probably going to be more of a laid back riding kind of a situation myself I felt like this was my one chance to rap against Jay-Z I need to show lyrical dexterity I need to show just how good a writer I am period point blank Um, this is not the time to sit back and just, and phone it in, you know? It's I the big southern rap here from Sario. Coming straight about the black barrio. Make some meal about for sorry. Now sit back and be my scenario. Oops, my bad, that's my scenario. No, I can't f- scare it. What? Now every time, every place, everywhere we go. Stop pointing and say, there he go. Now he's smoking. No, we carry more heat than a little bit. We don't pull it out over this shit. And if you catch a lick when I spin, then it won't be a little hit. Go read a book, you illiterate son of a bitch. Step up your vocab. Don't be surprised if you're f- there. f***er. with me and you see it's coming down on your slab. Uh, smoke uh. and
0: one of the things that I've always wondered about that album or that record, and that you'll—I hope you'll forgive me for asking—but the uh, the chorus is uh, "Big pimpin', spendin' cheese." Uh, uh, and then spinach and cheese is rhymed with uh, uh, sitting on uh, B-L-A-Ds. Yes. Um, which I'm pretty sure, like, Jay-Z's a pretty good speller and everything. But isn't that Blads? Haha, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I've always wondered, like, if somebody says something like, like, are you just, like, kind of nervous to go up to Jay-Z and be say I think there's an, you should say an E at the end of that. <laughs>
3: well, actually, that's my chorus. That's the way that I did my verse. He had done, when he had went in, he had done his verse, and he had done another a chorus to fit his. And I did mine because we called core rims, car rim blades, and I figured people would just, the E kind of like, is understood, kind of like, why? I didn't think it was going to be a big deal, <laughs> and I could always kind of bluff that I wrote it as in D-E apostrophe S. You know what I'm saying? Uh <laughs> Because that still works But um, no, nah, I mean it. Um, you know he, He's a great writer man. I don't think Anybody needs to be able To start uh, pointing out His English And I think if it got down to I think if we all Start pointing out Each other's grammatical errors In rap We wouldn't get Anything accomplished I think I think everybody's Pretty much using uh, Short order shorthand In here You know We're all, we're all Diner chefs In this thing
0: When that record came out and was such an enormous hit, it was just as you guys kind of hit a snag with Jive. It seemed like when that finally got settled, you know, the frustration was just compounded when, uh, you know, that was, that was right about when Pimp ended up going to jail. Right. But What happened?
3: Well, he, he went to jail for, uh, for violating his probation, I, I want to say. Yeah. For a probation violation on a, um, what was it? An attempted assault with a handgun? Basically, he, you know, got into it with a group of people in the mall and, um, pulled his gun in the mall. And that was basically, that's attempted aggravated assault, basically. So he had ended up getting probation for it, but ended up, but after that, violated his probation. So that's what, it, what, uh, on several occasions, which is what um, ended up getting him incarcerated.
0: It seems like you chose very specifically to take that time that he was in jail to um, to sort of celebrate him and, and celebrate the group rather than, say, you know, just coming out and, and, and making a bunch of solo records. Why did you choose that? Why, why did it become about Free Pimp C then?
3: Well, you know, me, myself, personally, I never had any desire to be a solo artist. I was in a great group. I had a great partner. I had no issues. So I never had any desire to go solo. So for me, um, it was all about the group. I knew at the end of the day, it was never about just him or just me. It was about what the pair and what we represented, you know, meant more basically than than who just the physical group was. So I, myself, I you know, not having the full strength of the group to lean on, I felt like, all I can lean on is the legacy, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, the what what the group means to people. And, you know, by expressing what it meant to me and how much I love the group and how much I miss Pimp, it gave people a, a chance to be a part of something, which people always want to be a part of something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But by, you know, doing the Free Pimp C movement, which was not an original movement, it's not anything that hadn't been done before, you know. Um, they had just, you know, done the Free Yale movement with 50 Cent um, so that it wasn 't anything that was brand new that I invented or anything it's just I guess just the fact of how long I carried the torch for it you could say
0: it really was a long time. what was it about four years about four years The movement that you built during those those four years was really powerful, and it was also coincidental with a really strong upsurge in in hip hop in in Houston on the national scene. What was it like when when pimp first got out? I
3: was just happy that when Pimp got out that we still had a little bit of light shining somewhat on the southern hip hop scene, particularly in Houston, um, that we had ever gotten as artists in our region. And I was just really happy that he was able to come home before everything kind of slowed down and shut down, you know. Pimpin' the bun we back in the game mr King's of the underground right. the name I said, I ain't I got fat. Fat. my was gone now you it it up your best so that you head home
0: tell me about what it was like um immediately after uh, Pimpsy passed
3: well i think the main concern was trying to make sure you know doing it i whatever i could do to help you know the estate in any way um but i wasn't initially were concerned with myself and how I felt about it. I tried to charge on the best I could so that people would know that it was okay to mourn. I you know a lot of the people that um, support UGK, especially the younger people living in what, what, what people tend to call these street lives or whatever, probably don't know exactly how to mourn. They haven't really been shown how to deal with grief and death. And I wanted to let people know that you weren't less than a man. If you had to cry, go ahead and cry, especially if you really love and care about
0: people you had this kind of world champion commitment to the group when uh Pimp was in jail. I mean, 4 years is a really long time and you know, nobody could have asked you to be more committed to the group than you were during that time. With Pimp gone, w- what was it like for you to be you know, artistically in a world without him? I mean,
3: it's 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 strange. You know what I'm saying? It it gets weird sometimes, you know what I'm saying? But I can't sit and act like it can't be done because, to a sense, we've already crossed that bridge. Um, the thing that makes it hard is the fact that he's not coming back to the process, which was one of the things that made it a bit easier to go through it while he was incarcerated was the fact that all we got to do is push and grind and stay motivated until he comes home and then everything will be okay again. Well, in this sense, he's he's not coming home, you know, and that's a reality that we all have to deal with and live with and remind ourselves of, because uh, sometimes some people can be so alive that when they're gone and visit, you know, physically the spirit still shines and still resonates so strong in a person's life. And, um, you know, like I said, there's not a day or or for me, there's not an hour, you know, that goes by where I don't, you know, think about him and consider it. You know, uh, think about and consider what, you know, what he would say in certain situations and do in certain situations. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, his wife, I'm sure, is dealing with it a little bit worse than I am. I'm sure his children, his mother, you know what I'm saying, his father, there are people who, you know, I I can probably say safely who miss him more than I do, you know? And if they can find the will, you know, and strength to get up, and go on every day doing what it is they need to do to keep living, then why can't I?
0: What are you most proud of personally as a as an MC? Like what what part of your work are you most proud of?
3: I think at the end of the day, I'll be able to laugh and say that I got to rap to more C beats than anybody else. Because right now, you would be surprised how many people wish they could rap to some of that right now. Smoke some And I will be able to say that I had the best partner that anybody could have had if you were going to make a rap group.
1: Bun B in conversation with Jesse Thorne in 2009. Bun B just released a fourth solo album, Trill OG, the epilogue.
3: I like to peppers and run rock grind. You know this seed pimp lost and bun knock dime i be at it and on it, don't start no static, I want it, when I want it, I get it, so get the hop in the bonnet. ain't no stopping, no frontin', be certified and official, when I see you licking your lips, you wanna up on my whistle, but I got that on cause. you can play it like Stevie, they say that pimpin' ain't easy, man it is if you be, me, me, I see a new one every day, and they think that cause they jazz in they glassed. it they gon' talk me out my paint. yeah you type but see my game is just a little bit tighter, pay for so yeah, that's alright, I'd rather smoke so past the lighter.
1: Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from the host. This week, that's me. It's The Outshot. As soon as I heard Franco Luambo's music, I understood his nickname. Franco dominated African music for four decades. That's from his start in 1955 playing nightclubs in the Congo till he died from AIDS in 1989. His nickname? The Sorcerer of the Guitar. There were people who were convinced he dabbled in black magic. They couldn't believe an ordinary mortal could make sounds like that come out of a guitar. Even the Congolese government feared him a little. They imagined he could bewitch listeners, maybe influence them to protest government corruption. Franco sang in French or in the Congolese language of Lingala, so I don't understand most lyrics of his songs. But it doesn't matter. Just take a listen to his guitar. It's hypnotic, swirling, complex, propulsive. Sometimes it's mournful, sometimes it's exuberant. That's easy to understand. And it's absolutely timeless. That's my outshot.
4: Well, that's
1: it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Brian Bolt. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast with whatever software you use to download podcasts. If you have thoughts about the show, best to take those to Jesse. Email him at jesse at MaximumFun.org. You should also post to our forum at forum.MaximumFun.org. And you can visit me at SusanOrlean.com or on Twitter at Susanorlean. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks to the Maximum Fun folks. And hi, Mom.
2: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org
1: Comedy and culture. Artist owned.
2: Listener supported.